Holy smokes. There's a lot of you out there this morning. Summer is officially over in Gainesville, huh? My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church, and yes, it is good to have you with us uh, this morning, especially if it is your first time. Uh, please do your best to come up and say hey to me. Uh, we, I'd love to get to uh, just get to know you, get to know your name, and tell you a little about the church afterwards uh, if you get a chance. Uh, you may have noticed something in your seat this morning. Yes, if you notice something in your seat this morning, why don't you go ahead and raise it up for me. And let me show that, see that you've got one. Or you may have noticed a stack of somethings in your seat. Do you, know, do you know what that means if you've noticed a stack of somethings in your seat? It means you got here too late, right? <laughs> yes, it means you got here too late, so everybody piled them up in your seat. Well, let me tell you why you have one of these. It is because um, this book right here, this collection of 66 books that we believe to be divinely inspired in the inerrant word of God, um, we, it's one of our values here at Aletheia. We have five distinguishing values here at Aletheia Church that you can see up on the screen. Number one is God's glory. Number two is the Bible. Number three is gospel community. Number four is everyday church. And number five is beyond Aletheia. And the reason we have the Bible as one of our values is just honestly is because many churches don't. And we want you to know that, that we truly value and treasure the Word of God. That in Hebrews 4.12, when it says, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We fully believe that at Aletheia Church. So we want to get you into the Word of God as much as possible. So with the giving that many of you have given over a period of time, we went and bought a bunch of Bibles. So if you do not have a Bible, please take this copy home with you today. It is your copy. There's one thing we ask you do with it, and one thing we ask you don't do, you don't do with it. Number one, we ask you to read it. Don't make it a coaster on your coffee table, all right? Go to Target for one of those, okay? We would ask that you read the Word of God if we give it to you, because here's the deal. When you read the Word of God, it has the potential through the Holy Spirit to release the power of God in your life. And if you are here and you are looking for God to move in your life, I promise you, if you will open His Word and you will ask God to allow His Word to read you as you read it, the Holy Spirit will change your life. to help you get into the practicing of opening the Bible. We have even bookmarked where we're going to go this morning, all right? All right? This card was not just placed in there randomly. This card was placed just for you to be able to turn to page 785. Now, there's two parts to this, right? This is also an invite card. So we're going to ask you, when you take this Bible with you today, even if you don't take this Bible with you today, take this invite card and invite someone to church and bring them with you next Sunday. Mine says, what are you doing Sunday? This is a great card to leave on a coffee table or after you leave a really good tip at a restaurant during the week, you leave it just like that, and there's information about the church and what to expect and where we can be found and all those good things. So if you take that copy of God's Word and you open it up to Mark chapter 1, you are going to see, I want you to look at the very first verse on, in Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And to help you this morning, I want you to practice reading those verses with me. I want to make sure you actually can read that you're, since you're students here at the University of Florida, all right? Just want to make sure, okay? Uh, you ready? One, two, three. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you know that those words that you just read this morning were the first words ever penned in the New Testament. The very first words that Christians ever got into their lives were the words that you just read this morning. Now, some of you who may be a little more familiar with Jesus and with the church and reading your Bible, you may be going, hold on, hold on. Then why is it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our Bible? And though sequentially in our Bible, it's in that order, scholars tell us chronologically the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel ever written. Peter, 
the head disciple, the head apostle, passed his gospel on to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. And so the first words penned in the New Testament are found here in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. In this verse, Mark tells us every single thing that he is trying to communicate throughout his entire gospel. He wants you to know, if you decide from here to go and make the book of Mark the first thing you read in God's word this semester, he wants you to know his big idea is that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the word for Christ is the, old, is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. It means the exact same thing. The anointed one, the redeemer, the savior, the one who would come. And for the first eight chapters of Mark, everything builds toward this one question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? You're a prophet. You're a teacher. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And in that moment, Peter responds, you are the Christ. And to him, Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because this was not revealed to you by man. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. From that point in the Gospel of Mark to all the way to the end of chapter 15 upon which Jesus is on the cross and He is crucified and His life extinguishes from His mortal body, there is a movement towards showing that Jesus is the Son of God. And the end of chapter 15 comes with a Roman centurion, the one who had just crucified Jesus upon the cross, making this confession that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Those are the two major movements in the Gospel of Mark, if you were to read through it. But we're going to focus in today on this word Messiah and this idea of Messiah. And you need to know that though Mark proclaims here that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, this is not the first time that the idea of a Messiah is introduced in the Word of God. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, to page 2 or 3 in the copy of God's Word that you were given this morning, you would see that as you read through chapter 1 that God created the world and He said everything was good. And then when He created man and woman, He said, oh, now it is very good. But immediately, man and woman decide to go their own way, do their own thing, follow Satan, and they bring sin and death and decay and destruction into the world. But does God banish them in a sense? Does he, does he punish them in a sense? Does he just wipe them off the face of the earth? Yes, there would be consequences. But the first word spoken by God in these consequences for their rebellion against him is one of hope. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent, to our enemy Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you've ever been to seminary or taken a high-level Bible course, you would know that once you read this, you're going to get this word from your teacher called the Proto-Evangelion. All right? The first gospel. Scholars tell us this is the first gospel. This is the first good news that God immediately announces that one day he would send one who would send one who would crush the head of the serpent to redeem and to rescue mankind, to rescue us from the curse of sin that we as humanity have brought upon the world. Of all the stories, Plots and subplots and twists, turns, lessons, characters, highs and lows that sprout up from the ground in the Old Testament. This verse, Genesis 3.15, and its message that a Messiah is coming is like the mustard seed in Jesus' famous parable in the Gospel of Mark. It will grow up and become larger than all the others. From this one verse, Genesis 3.15, covering from beginning to end in the Old Testament, one day a Messiah would come to rescue the people from sin, from death, from hell, and whatever else might plague the creation that is under the curse of sin. But let's be honest with ourselves, in many times in the Old Testament, it looks really dark and it looks really bleak. God takes this very small nation, the, the, the smallest of nations, Israel, and he builds them up into a mighty kingdom. And around 1000 BC, it looks great and wonderful when David and Solomon are ruling and reigning upon the earth. But from that moment in 1000 BC, things go haywire. Things begin to 
just disrupt and to be destroyed to where the nation of Israel is dispersed all over the world. The temple is destroyed where God's presence dwelt. And so he is no longer with the people in the same way in 586. And from 586 to 400, it just gets worse and worse and darker and darker and darker. And then at 400 BC, God goes absolutely silent for 400 years. And after 400 long years of absolute silence from God, John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And with that, the New Testament begins. Jesus' ministry begins The kingdom of God comes and begins among us. Therefore, don't miss what Mark says in verse 15. One of the things we have to do when we we read the scriptures, we have to pay attention to what we call the principle of firsts. When a word is first introduced, when an idea is first introduced, when a theme is first introduced, when when Jesus does something for the first time, we need to pay attention because the gospel writers are putting it there in a certain way that they are emphasizing what is happening. So we saw Mark's first words in chapter 1, verse 1. The whole gospel is about the whole good news is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But yet the very first words that Jesus speaks in chapter 1, verse 15, if you'll look on that page that you have, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now how many times have you read the gospel of Mark and just gone right over those words and not ever noticed How emphatic Jesus is. The first four words that we translate from Greek into English. The time is fulfilled. Now today people will tell you Jesus is a good guy. He's a good moral teacher. He had some good things to say. It's just his followers that are crazy. I'll agree that his followers are crazy. All right, Hands down, you get that one. But you can't just stop and say Jesus was just a good guy, just a good moral teacher. Because what Jesus is actually saying here in the Greek coming over to us is, I am the fulfillment of all time. Everything that has been happening since before creation was made, everything that has been working its way through the Old Testament, the over 300 promises of a Messiah who would come, Jesus says, right now, in your midst, in front of all of you, that time is now fulfilled. I am the center of the entire universe. Everything revolves around me. All time is fulfilled in His presence and with His words in this moment. And He tells any who would listen, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. Do not miss the magnitude of Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark. The first words that Christians would have heard about Jesus and what he had said. Now you need to understand so pregnant is this phrase, repent and believe in the gospel. If you don't know what the word repent means, it's pretty simple. It's basically like when you were first time on campus as a freshman and you had your map or whatever and you thought you were going the right way to get to a building and you've walked eight miles from one end of campus to the other, right? And then you realize, crap, I am totally on the wrong end of campus. So now you had to repent and walk all the way to the other part of campus, right? That's all repent means. It just means turn around from going the wrong way and go the right way. And so Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Simply saying, you need to stop believing that any amount of good works will ever get you into heaven. You need to stop believing that you can earn your way to salvation. You need to stop depending on your own works And trust in mine, Jesus says. When the Bible promises rest, that's what it's talking about. 
It's not talking about a good long nap. It's not talking about how a lie, a super easy, comfortable life where following Jesus is easy. No, the rest that Jesus says to come take is rest from your works of trying to earn your way to heaven, but fully depend on mine. In the same way, if you want a word picture for this, in the same way right now you are fully resting on the cushion and on the legs of that seat, as your weight is fully transferred on that seat. Like right now, none of you are holding yourself up by your own feet, right? None of you are like trying to like sit there, and you're sitting there like this just above, the, you know, an inch of the seat, and you're sitting there this one, right? You are fully rested. And some of you are more rested than others, and some of you are so rested, you're going to be like this in a minute. All right? We don't want you to go there. So nobody sits like this. When you sit in a chair, how do you sit? Full weight, full trust. That's what it means to believe in the gospel. Full weight, full trust. Every single ounce of what you have, not believing in anything of your works, but in trusting in Jesus' work alone, that's the good news. That you don't have to do any work to earn your salvation because Jesus has done all the work for you. Simply repent. Stop going your own way. Stop trying to do it your own way and believe in the gospel. And the reason Jesus wants you to repent and believe in the gospel because Jesus is the best news you will ever hear. Even when they call your name on that stage one day, Jesus' news is better. The announcement of the pastor one day who says, let me introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Jesus is better news than that. The announcement that your first child is on the way, your first child is here, Happy and healthy, it's better news than that. It's better news than the day your accountant tells you there's enough money in your bank account to retire. Anything you're going to hear from this point forward to the day you draw your last breath, the best news you will ever hear is to repent and believe in the gospel. The title of today's message is Messiah, Message, Mission. The emphasis inside of this title has two main ideas, disciple and discipleship. And believe it or not, we're going to make it all the way through the entire Gospel of Mark this morning before you leave. And yes, you'll still be on time for lunch, I promise. <laughs> I talked about the principle of first. Still, first page. I want you to read with me, not out loud, just read along on the page. Verses 16 through 20 of Mark chapter 1. Mark says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What you see here is Jesus calling the first disciples. Now, in case you don't know what that word means, if it's never been defined for you, the word from the Greek to the English has two big ideas. Learner and follower, all right? So for the rest of your life, if you just want the simple definition of disciple, it is learner and follower. Now, we here at Aletheia Church, we have added a little bit of color to that definition. We've tried to expand it a little bit to give you a little more, a greater idea of what that means. And so if you want to know the, the definition we use, it's this on the screen. A disciple is someone who worships Jesus is changed by Jesus, and obeys Jesus' commands. It's kind of like a three-legged stool. And it's, it's one of the things you've got to ask yourself this morning. Can, can you say that you are a disciple? Right? Now, now some of you say, well, I'm a Christian. Okay, now let, let me just clarify for you. It has been erroneously taught in, in many churches across our great land and around the world that, that, that some way, somehow, a person prays a prayer, asks Jesus into their heart, and they become a Christian. But then somehow, kind of like a pole vaulter getting over a bar or like meeting a certain goal on a fundraising graph or getting enough experience points in a video game to go to the next level that you then graduate to this new level called disciple. 
The Bible does not know of those categories. In fact, the Bible doesn't even really use the word Christian except for one or two times. And that was until way later down the road, and it wasn't the church calling themselves Christians. It was people on the outside saying, man, those people are awesome in the way they live their lives, and they're like little Christs. The church didn't take that name on themselves. The word they took upon themselves was the word disciple. You want to know why? Because that's the word Jesus used. And so when Jesus designates what you are and what you aren't, I think it's important that we maintain that distinction. So if you want to ask yourself, if you would say, well, I'm a Christian but not a disciple, the Bible wouldn't recognize those categories. Because the Bible says they are one in the same. And so like a three-legged stool this morning, that, have you, has anyone ever tried to sit on a three-legged stool? Okay. Like you think, oh, it's a three-legged stool. I can totally do this. No, you can't. It's weird. Like, it is different. Like, we just jump on a four-legged stool around the bar and our island or our kitchen. We just jump up there. But you actually sit on a three-legged stool. Like, it takes some effort. It takes some concentration. It's actual work. Because if you just get just off balance just a little bit, right, you fall and you crash to the ground. If you don't believe me, go find one somewhere. It'd be a fun thing to do at a party. But, you know, I know you guys don't do that kind of stuff here. But anyway... So it's like, it's like a three-legged stool. And so do you see these three pillars in your life that you are someone who says you worships Jesus, you can see in your own life you are being changed by Jesus, and you are obeying Jesus' commands? Not perfectly, but you know the, the, the bent of your life, the focus of your life, the striving of your life is to make your life obedient to Jesus. As we move to the Gospel of Mark, I want to show you there are five great grand realities of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because we want you to know, let me just say, like, I counted all the first-time guests the best I could, all the new people I met. Like, I think there's 35 first-time guests here today. All right? Somebody should be happy about that. Excited. Somebody should say, welcome, great to have you here. I will welcome you. It's great to have you here. All right? Here's the deal. We want you to know what we are about. You can go to all kinds of churches all over the place and, and, and pick your flavor, like Baskin Robbins, 31 flavor. You can pick your flavor. Here, here, here's what I'll tell you. Our goal here is to send you out here as a disciple of Jesus Christ. One of our values beyond Alapia. We know you are not going to be here long. You're going to be most likely in this town for a short time. We want to send you out as a disciple who is ready to make disciples to bring honor and glory to God for the rest of your life until you draw your last breath. If you're like, hey, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, this is your church. One guy said this morning, I've been here a month, I've gone to a bunch of churches, and I said, hey, buddy, your search stops here. We're done. You found your place. Let's go. Let's get to work. All right? That's it. Because we're just doing exactly what the Bible says. So if you want to do what the Bible says and you want to follow Jesus, you can go somewhere else. But I'll tell you, you've already found it right here. But you need to know there are five realities of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm going to put the first two together. Number one is it's necessary. And number two, it's responsive. Christian, disciple, the same thing. Look what Jesus says. I mean, I, I just love it, right? So Jesus just walks up to these guys. Follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. Now, you've you got to think about it. These guys are about your age, right? They're, 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 they're around your age. And you imagine right now, in class this week, somebody walks into your door of your room and, Hey, you, follow me. Any of you going to get up and follow him? <laughs> no. Because you got why? You got, you're invested in this thing. You're invested in your degree. You're invested in this school. You're invested... I mean, all over the place. You have built your whole life toward this. So don't shortchange these guys and just think, oh, they're a bunch of country old hillbillies who are fishermen. These guys often get short-sold as these country hillbillies who are blue-collar and didn't know anything. I want to point out something to you if you look deeply into the text. These men were actually blue-collar businessmen, okay? Because they, they had a fishing business. They had a family business fishing now that was the first two guys. Look at the last two guys, James and John, his brother. They had hired servants. They actually had a fishing enterprise. They had so much money. They had employees they had hired to do the work before them. Because what you think is easier, 
fixing the nets on the seashore or being out in the water pulling up all the heavy fish. I know what job I would take, right? These guys had a fishing enterprise. So they had their lives totally committed to their career, to their family, and they had dreams and hopes and passions. And along comes this dude on the seashore. Hey, you, follow me. You, follow me. Come on, let's go. And what do they do? They immediately leave their nets and follow him. Now notice what he says. I will make you become fishers of men. How many, how many fishing people do I have in this room? You people have got to get outside, okay? Get off the computer and get outside. Okay, I thought this illustration was going to work better, but apparently none of y'all... Now, but this may be the reason. Do you not fish because it's hard to catch fish? Okay, okay, fair enough. Guess what? Catching fish is hard. Okay? I have been spoiled fishing. When I, I, I lived in Seattle for 12 years, planted a church up there, been down here for a year. One of my best friends in Seattle, he was the premier hunting and, and fishing guy in all the state of Washington. He had his own show on ESPN. Every two years, they buy him a quarter million dollar boat with ESPN down the side to go catch King Salmon. Anytime I want fish, I just say, hey, Tom, let's go fishing today. He goes five days a week. The other two days a week, he's a firefighter. Guess what, Guess what happens? All I do is get on the boat. Tom sets everything up. We go out there. And if you've ever done salmon fishing, it's very different because it's all set up for you. The pole's just sitting right there. And you just sit there and you hang out. You listen to radio. You watch the rod go. You run up, you grab it, you reel it in, 20 pounds of meat right in the boat. Now, that is my idea of fishing, right? That's a good day. We hardly ever got skunk fishing like that. But that is not exactly how fishing is. Fishing is hard because guess what? Fish don't like to be caught. Guess what? People don't like to be caught either. I heard a story recently about Ronald Reagan. All right, let me let go. I always get in trouble because I'm old and I forget who. Does everybody know who Ronald Reagan is? Okay, well, I, gave, I gave a boys to men reference last year, and nobody knew who that was. Okay, so we know who Ronald Reagan is. He was president of the United States. If you talk to people in my generation above, greatest president of our generation is kind of generally agreed upon. What you may not know, before he was president, he was a Hollywood actor, right? Not so much of a stretch that some business person is now president of the United States, all right? Like a Hollywood actor. Can you imagine that? Woo, it'd be funny if a Hollywood actor tried that today. But he was a Hollywood actor, became president of the United States of America. You know what his job was before that? Anybody know? Anybody know? Lifeguard. They interviewed him in his, in his autobiography, and they said, hey, what was the number one most common response to anybody you pulled out of the water? Anger. The overwhelming majority of people were angry and mad at me that I rescued them. Now, what does that say to us about our human condition? That a man just saved your life. You would think grateful, thankful, I mean, debt of gratitude, all these things. But the number one common response is anger. I can do it myself. I did not need you to come and rescue me. That's why Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. I will make you become fishers of men. Becoming a fisher of men is an incredibly hard thing to become. No, it's not. I love it. It's not a doing statement. I will make you go do this thing fishing for men. No, no, no. You will become fishers of men. It is a statement of identity and purpose. It comes from your identity and who you are, who Jesus changes you into. That's why when we say being a Christian and being a disciple is the same thing, it's necessary and responsive. It's because Jesus says it's one of the transformational realities of becoming a follower of Jesus. See, in that moment, the Son of God, like the center of our universe, that big, hot sun that we've been missing for three days, that everything revolves around, is the center of our universe. In this moment, Jesus becomes the center of their universe. He becomes before he comes before all else. And you need to know, if you, if you are truly a disciple, if you're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, then Jesus is the center of your universe, and you are willing to go do whatever he wants you to do. To, with an open hand, say, Jesus, my life is yours. 
Because when the Bible speaks in the term of disciple, when the Bible speaks in the term of Christians, that's what it is. And he may call you to change careers. He may call you to change jobs. And that's why you've got to trust, right? The way your weight is trusting in that, you've got to trust him, even though it's crazy. And let me say, if you ever want to talk about it, I'm here. I became a believer three months before I graduated from Auburn University. I have a degree in turf grass management. My whole life was to manage golf courses and live a country club lifestyle my entire life. And I was set up for that. Then Jesus ruined it and wrecked it all. All right? I had invested all the years. I had invested all the money, all the plans. I ended up going overseas to be a missionary in Africa, making $700 a month. Woo-hoo, big money, right? Then I go back broke as a joke to go to seminary because I met my wife over there as a missionary. We go to seminary, and for about five years, our spending cash per month, extra beyond our budget, was $10 a month for five years. We moved to the Northwest, and we planted a church with $4,000 in our pocket, and we lived off $4,000 in somebody's basement for nine months. And I'll tell you, I don't regret a single moment of it. Because when you fully trust in Jesus that way, and you just let him have full control of your life, that's when you get to see the power of God move in spectacular ways in your life. You want it all taken care of. Boring. Right? No, no, and, and, but, but I'm being serious, you know, I mean, because again, I mean, you know, me, me, many of you know, like, like, I am financially retired. I don't, I, I don't say this for, for, for many things. Like, like I, I'm living the dream all of you want to live. Like, because of a business we started, we're, I'm financially retired. Trust me, there are days when I wish I could give it all away and get rid of every single bit of it and just go back to leaning on God in those special ways. Now, I realize God has given us all this, and we, have, and we are trying to do our best to get the gospel all around the world with all the stuff he has given us. It is not just for us. We live so far below our income level because we want the gospel to go to all the world. But I, I'm there. Like I can, I, can, I can talk to you about so many of these realities. There are so many days I wish God would just take it all away and I could go back. The way it used to be, because it was fun following Jesus. We had absolutely nothing, because you get to see God move and do amazing things in your life. Jesus comes before all else. He might call us to change careers and jobs. He did me. But let me say to you, don't get scared yet, because if you're like, holy moly, you guys are asking for a lot. No, we're not asking for anything. Jesus is. For most of you, Jesus is just going to want you to wherever you go in life, every step you take, just to put him first. Wherever you're at in your classroom, put Jesus first. Whatever job you right now, you put Jesus first. Everywhere you go, you just put Jesus first everywhere you go. Let him take care of the details. Let him take care of the direction. Proverbs 16, 9, man makes his plan, the Lord directs his steps. You just keep walking, saying, Jesus, what do you want to do in me today? Where do you want to go today? How do you want me to, to ship, become a fisher of men today? And you let him direct your steps. And some of you, it may be to the far reaches of the world. And for some, you may be here in Gainesville for the rest of your life. And that is your worst nightmare come true. But it's Jesus' greatest dream for your life. And if that's Jesus' greatest dream for your life, let, this, let us tell you, we have a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? We've can, we, we can we got lots of things we could do in ministry here in the city of Gainesville. Don't be like the Crusaders. Everybody knows the Crusades. We, we talk, talked about that in world history in school. So many of the crusaders, when they got baptized before battle, as they went under the water, they would take their sword and they would hold it up out of the water. You know why? Because they were saying to God, you can have everything but my sword. Is there anything in your life right now that you were saying to Jesus, you can have everything but? If you are, and you haven't figured out and declared that he is worthy. Because if you see Jesus for all of his worth, that sword will go under the water with you. That career will go under the water with you. That paycheck will go under the water with you. All of your hopes and dreams will go under that water and be baptized and be put to death so that he can raise you up to a new life a life of truly walking in the Spirit's power. To be a disciple is necessary. To be a disciple is responsive. And Jesus wants you to know it's costly. 
Jesus never soft pedals the gospel. Oh, just pray a prayer. Live a good, wonderful life. Remember I told you how Peter made that confession when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? Jesus said, Peter says, you are the Christ. Immediately following that, there's a little story about Jesus rebuking Peter. We're going to skip that one. But if you'll just turn over on your pages to Mark chapter 8, a couple pages over, look at verses 34 through 38, and look what Jesus says. Now notice, there's, there's a distinction between the crowd and the disciples. They are not one and the same. Today, you would either be crowd or disciples. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Following Jesus involves denying self. Now let me ask you a question. What is the number one message promoted by culture today? Two words. Express yourself. Right? Just, just think about it. Think about what you hear in culture. Culture says, expressing self is the greatest good in life. That's how you discover your true self. How do you do this? You look inside your heart. Deep inside your heart, right? And the deeper your desires inside your heart, the more core these desires are to your true identity. You discover your true self, and then you have to be true to that self. Only by being true to yourself, identified by these feelings that you have, can you truly be holy and authentically happy. Do you know what this is? This is the theme of all Disney movies. This is the theme of every Disney movie your generation has ever watched. Frozen. That's, that's the easy one, right? Right? I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to hold it back anymore. I'm just going to be me. Here's the thing nobody ever talks about. Where does she end up when she expresses her true self? Girls, come on, help me out. Come on, where does she end up? In an ice castle. Thank you, Derek. All alone. Right? She ends up isolated from everyone expressing her truth. Do not miss that part of the movie. Do not miss that part of the story. Because that is what happens. Because if you do nothing but express your true self to me, Truly, I don't want to be around you, and you don't want to be around me, if you truly follow this to its logical conclusion. And see, you have to understand what is most essential in life culturally is to express yourself. The greatest sin in culture is to constrain anyone from being who they are. But there's this guy named Jesus. And he says the exact opposite thing. Deny yourself. Do those two words sound like the same thing? Do those two phrases, deny yourself and express yourself, equal each other? No. Jesus says deny yourself. That involves a profound no to some of your strongest feelings and desires. If you choose to become a disciple of Jesus and you say, yes, Lord, my life is yours, you need to know this up front. There are days and there are times and there are seasons and sometimes years it will feel like Jesus is killing you. 
and he is. He's killing the old you to resurrect the new you. As you die, he becomes alive. If you want to experience the power of God in your life, you must deny self. You must die to self and because that is when his power flows through you. As you deny yourself, now listen to this. As you deny yourself and follow Jesus, you become the true you that God first thought up when he created you. If you want to become the true you, the only way that happens is for God himself to mold you and to shape you and to form you into the true you that he actually created. The one that he had in mind long before he ever brought any matter into existence. That is the true you that he is trying to shape. And Romans 8.29 tells us this. If you ever want to know what is God's highest goal and desire for my life, Romans 8.29 is always the place you go. It is to conform you to the image of Jesus. And everything that you do for the rest of your life, God has one overarching goal for your life, and that is to conform you to the image of Jesus. Period. End of story. Now, what you may be saying to yourself right now is, oh, this is way too hard. I can't do this. Right confession, wrong focus. That is the absolutely right confession. I can't do this. You can't do this. But the problem is the focus is on me, 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 me. The focus has to be here. God, I can't do it. So if this is going to happen, it's up to you. Because I'm just going to get in the way. Quickly on point four. The other necessary reality is it's corporate. You were never meant to do this alone. I want you to listen to me as someone who has lived a lot of life, who has counseled a lot of families. At some point in your life, you are going to get injured and wounded severely by the church. And your tendency is going to be to run away and to say, to hell with those people. I don't need them. I don't need it. Let me tell you, you need the church more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. If you want to ruin your life, if you want to ruin your family's life, I will promise you, the great litany of people who have been in my churches are well-meaning Christians who thought they could get together and do their own thing and not come under the church as God has designed it, not needing other people, and their lives are absolute shambles. I could tell you hundreds of stories Thousands of bodies of people that I have counseled and pastored throughout the years who this is their experience. Do not ever be so arrogant to think that you can walk the Christian life and follow Jesus without the body of Christ. It is crucial that you have people around you to do this. The last reality is that if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus... You must be missional. You see, Jesus accomplishes his mission, and then he sends us on ours. Now, though Mark has its own great commission, the one that we famously know is called the Great Commission from Matthew 28, 16 through 20, that Chiara read for us right before I came up. And I want you to, to look at this. Now, now you've got to ask yourself, okay, now here's this guy named Jesus. Okay, he's about to send them with this great command, this great directive. Now, you've got to ask yourself, am I going to listen to this? Remember one of those three things a disciple is obey Jesus' commands. This is as strong a you ca- as a command you can get. Now, if you're going, ah, man, will I or won't I? Here, here's the deal. At this point, Jesus has raised himself from the dead. Now, you listen to a lot of voices in your life. Have any of them pulled off that trick yet? All right? This is, one of my, this is one of my great things in life. This is one of the, this is one of the greatest. Whoever can rise them, raise himself from the dead, we should listen to that guy, right? The guy who can do that, mm, yeah, he's worthy. Yeah, I, I need to follow that guy because I got no friends doing that. 
I got no family doing that, no professor doing that, nobody on CNN News, Fox News, any of my podcasts, none of them ever done that. This guy did. And these are his final words closing out the Gospel of Matthew. And he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I want you to notice the four alls that Jesus says are all-encompassing. Number one, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth. All right? Now, either he is nuts or that's true. I mean, just think about it. Anybody walk up to you and go, hey, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, you might be asking yourself, but Daniel, this world looks pretty wild and crazy, and it doesn't look like it. Guess what? Hebrews addresses that in chapter 2, verse 8. And it says, all things are subject to his control, even though it doesn't look like it. But guess what? Jesus is seated on his throne. Now, when an emperor is worried, what's he up doing? He's running around. He's pacing back and forth. Oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? But when an emperor is totally in control, what's he doing? Just like you. He's sitting chill back in that seat because he's got it all under control. Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Number two, he says, make disciples of all nations. Let me say this to you. Jesus does not want converts. Jesus wants disciples. He doesn't want converts. He wants disciples. Our marching orders are to make disciples of all nations. And in case you're just wondering, oh man, how far does that go? Anything that's on planet Earth. If there's aliens out there, we'll discuss that when we find them, okay? But right now, if it's the 7 billion people on planet Earth, that's where we're going. Because that's all the nations that we are aware of. And there are about 6,000 nations. And like 40% of them have no access to the gospel. You know why? Because we've been disobedient in going. The church has been disobedient in going. We're trying to change that here. I want you to teach them all that I have commanded. And no matter what, realize that I am with you at all times to the end of the age. That's why the moment you become a disciple of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And he is the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You can't lose your salvation. If you've ever been taught that, sorry, they were wrong. The Bible says that Jesus will be faithful to carry on to completion the work that he began in you. If you are here today and you're worrying about losing your salvation, it's not possible. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. All right? Because when Jesus saves you, he doesn't let you go. When you adopt a child, guess what? You are stuck with that child for the rest of your life. And the Bible uses those terms adoption. Guess who does not do the choosing in the adoption? Who doesn't do the choosing? The child. Who does all the choosing? The parents. When that parent says, child, you are mine, that's exactly what Jesus does for you. And his love is greater than any human being. He will never let you go. So these, this thing to make disciples is something that we in the church call discipleship. So if you're always wondering, well, what does that mean? How do I do that? Here's your definition that we use here at Alathia Church. Discipleship, leading others to increasingly submit all of life, time, work, relationships, finances, sexuality, leisure, leisure etc., to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. These are your marching orders from Jesus, that if you are going to follow Jesus then you have a responsibility to lead others to increasingly submit all of their life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus. And this is part of that third leg of the stool, obeying Jesus' commands. 
And, and I know right now there's some pushback. Oh, I did not sign up for this. I did not know this was, uh, you know, I just wanted to go to church, get my get out of hell free card. I want to go to heaven, have everything go well for me, have God show up when I really need him to. That's what I thought this whole Jesus Christianity thing was all about. Like, I don't know, this is like way too much. Admit it, like own it, okay? Because at first, the first thing you got to do is acknowledge it. The second thing you got to do is confess of it. And the third thing you got to do is repent of it, all right? But we can handle that another day. But you may be saying to yourself, hey, I'm new to all this. I don't know enough. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. How do I make disciples? I don't have anyone to tell. I promise you, there are a lot of people who know a lot less than you. If all you know about Jesus is what you've heard today, you know more than at least 90% of the people on campus. I promise you. If you just take today's message and everything that I've said about Jesus, you already know more than 90% of the people on campus. And we have the factual data to prove it from studies being done on universities across the country. All right? Your generation, one half of 1% are followers of Jesus. That's one in every 200 people. When you go on this campus, one in every 200 people can actually answer the eight basic questions about Orthodox Christianity and who Jesus is. So there is a vast mission field of 50,000 students for you to reach that we as a church for the campus and the community are trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people who know less than you. question you've got to ask yourself about this Messiah and this message that he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And this mission that he gives you to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that he's always with us. Is it, The question is only one. Is he worthy? Is he worthy?